The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about the culture of science, the difference between good and bad science, and how bad science may be a bigger problem than we think. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Michael Inslecht, a research excellence faculty scholar at the University of Toronto. His primary appointment is as professor in the Department of Psychology, but he is also cross-appointed as professor at the Rotman School of Management and a research fellow at the Behavioral Economics in Action Group. He conducts research that sits at the boundaries of social psychology, cognitive science, and neuroscience. Michael, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I'd like to start with the reproducibility project done by the Open Science Collaboration. Can you walk us through what that project was? Yes, uh, that's a very, very ambitious project uh, spearheaded by Brian Nosek, but uh, who shepherded, I think, over 200 authors to replicate uh, 100 studies uh, that were published, I believe it was in the year 2008. So essentially what uh, this team did was they um, found, identified 100 uh, papers uh, that were published in 2008 from three prominent journals in psychology. And it wasn't a random process, but uh, uh, in terms of how the studies were selected, uh, but uh, nonetheless, 100, 100 were conducted in, in, in mostly in social psychology and in cognitive psychology. And these various labs from all over the world uh, tried to replicate. Since you know, looked at the articles, uh, tried to reproduce the the the, the methods. Um, sometimes or often consulted with the original authors to make sure they didn't miss anything from the original write-ups. And then they went about uh, trying to replicate. So reproducing the methods, running participants through these various um, psychological paradigms uh, studies. And then, you know, collected, collected data and analyzed the results and compared them, compared the results, uh, the replicated results with the original results. And the results were, uh, were startling to say the least. Uh, so in the original 100 papers, I believe the, the, let's say the main result of each study, I think almost all of them had a significant result. I think maybe one didn't. Uh, but almost all of them had, you know, some take home. Look, we found this significant finding, uh, and this means, you know, so and so. Um, it turns out when, uh, the, when this was uh, attempted, uh, uh, in terms of replication, only, I believe it was about 30, 39% or 36% of the original findings could be replicated. And now there are a number of metrics uh, used to evaluate whether something is replicable or not. And that number, that 36, or I'm not, I'm not even sure the exact number now, um, that number varies depending on what metric is used. So it could be 30, it could be 36, it could be closer to 50%. Uh, it's not clear, but uh, nonetheless, whatever it is, it's not at the level of re uh, replicability that we would expect. Now, I don't know what that number ought to be, ought that to be 80%, 75%, I'm not sure. I think most people would say probably shouldn't be 100%, uh, meaning that, yes, we are going to have some results that are going to be false leads. They're going to be false positives. That's a normal part of science. 
Um, we need exploration. We need creativity. So you know, we're not expecting to replicate everything 100% of the time, but we expect to have some degree of fidelity, uh, probably a higher degree of fidelity than that, you know, 36% uh, that I mentioned. So this in a way is, um, you can think of this as, as a stress test of the field of psychology, of social psychology and of cognitive psychology. And I, you know, I think it's fair to say that we did not pass the tests, that many of our results did not replicate. They didn't, can, could not be reproduced, which then begs the question, well, how rampant are these, uh, non replicable results in our literature? Is it possible that these 100 studies were, you know, because they were not randomly selected, maybe they are not representative of, you know, the, the, the field at large. Uh, you know, that's something I, I highly doubt, but it's possible. Um, nonetheless, it, 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 it asks a question. Uh, and I think the answer, you know, the question of how, you know, how strong, how robust is our field? And I think the answer is, you know, not as robust as we'd like it to be. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a wake up call for many of us to, to do better science, to, 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 to think more deeply about using methods that will generate results that are replicable in the future. So why did this project come about? I mean, what prompted it in, uh, in the first place? Uh, that's a good question. You, you, you would probably want to ask Brian Nosek, who's a, who spearheaded this uh, rather than, than me. Uh, but I can give you some guesses. Uh, so, in other fields, uh, uh, like in medicine, for example, John Ioannidis uh, wrote a now very, very famous paper um, with a title, I'm forgetting the exact title, but it was something like, you know, most results are false, uh, suggesting that over half uh, of, of published results in medical journals are most certainly false positives. And I think this was the mid-2000s that were, when this was published. And uh, Ioannidis, who, um, uh, who was at Stanford, uh, yes, he was, he, he was looking at, at medical research, but I think the problems that he identified, uh, were also, uh, clearly uh, relevant to other disciplines, including psychology. Um, but I should note, uh, be, you know, I, I, I suspect that I will be talking mostly about psychology today. We should note that this problem is not psychology's problem alone. So psychology has got a lot of attention uh, for this. I think mostly because we're doing these really ambitious projects, like the, you know, replica, uh, the reproducibility project, where we're trying to replicate 100 studies. We have these massive attempts to replicate, you know, specific papers. So we're very, very, uh, uh, we're in the news a lot. But one could argue we're in the news because we're doing something about our problems. But other areas like medicine, like uh, by certain branches of biology, like economics. Um, other social sciences, uh, they too uh, face the same kinds of problems. And one could argue their problems are more problematic because the outcomes they study are, some could argue, more important. Uh, so if there's a, a raft of false positives in medical science, uh, and that's really important. This, 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 these are life and death uh, kinds of uh, results that we're talking about here. So anyway, so, uh, so we, this was identified early uh, in the mid-2000s, I should say. And I suppose uh, Brian Nosek was influenced by, you know, uh, the rumbling from statisticians in various uh, fields and started asking questions about the reproducibility or, or replicability of his own field uh, of psychology. So, and, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, keep going. Uh, I'm, I'm just rambling, so uh, you can go <laughs> ahead and ask a question. So what 
what are these 100 studies? How were they chosen and what types of studies were included uh, in these 100? So uh, I think the, the inclusion criteria were, uh, they were published in 2008. Uh, they were published in one of three journals. Uh, these are three very, very prominent journals. Uh, so one was a general so, um, uh, a journal in psychology called Psychological Science, widely considered, you know, one of the top journals in our field. It publishes uh, 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 paper, um, papers in, in all kinds of sub-disciplines within psychology. A second journal was the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, the main journal for social psychology. Uh, and the third uh, journal was um, uh, the Journal of Experimental Psychology, Human Learning and Memory, I believe, uh, which is uh, one of the mainstays of cognitive psychology. And I think they uh, uh, at, at first the idea was to replicate every single uh, article that was published in that year, but that would be I think hundreds of, of studies. So they, in, in the end, they decided just to stop once they reached 100 uh, studies. And how those were selected within you know the, the the larger corpus of studies within 2008, I'm not exactly sure. I think there was some self selection. So some you know I think authors were with an interest in a certain topic, might have picked a certain paper. Um, if they had expertise in a certain area, they might have been asked to replicate a certain project, etc. So there was, it, it wasn't random. Is it, it, an important uh, point here, um, and I think that's a, a legitimate uh, uh, criticism because if it's not random, then one could argue that there was some sort of you know there's something special about these 100 papers. Um, now, uh, in terms of the actual content of any one of these studies, you know, you're, you're pressing my memory a little bit now, uh, but I'll give you, I think I, there's one example I, I can remember. Um, this was a, a, a study, uh, I guess it was published in 2008 in Psychological Science, published by Kathleen Voss and Jonathan Schooler. I believe those are the two authors. And they, they found that when people were, uh, you know, Led to believe that that uh, that they did not have free will. So when they were primed with with, with the notion that you know um, our behaviors and actions are all predetermined, uh, they then found that people like this were more likely to engage in immoral acts uh, relative to uh, people who were not reminded or primed with um, these sorts of uh, uh, determinism beliefs. Uh, and this is kind of an interesting, uh, very sexy study. It, it suggests that, you know, our, our lay beliefs of whether we have free will or not can determine uh, the extent to which we're moral or not. Well, it turns out when this was uh, uh, attempted, a replication was attempted on this study, um, it, it could not be replicated. And this is kind of important because that paper, the original paper, got lots of press attention. It's, a, it's, it, it's catchy. Um, it kind of makes some sense. Um, and it has some, some potentially broad implications. Uh, but yet, it, it cannot be replicated. What so, other types of social psychology ideas have come under closer scrutiny since this project started? Well, there's been a lot of now findings that have come under scrutiny. Um, whether they they were included in this in this reproducibility project is, is something separate. So the reproducibility project, which we've just been talking about, uh, the hundred study you know uh, attempt, that's just one. Very, very important, very, very prominent, and high now, highly cited. It's been out for, I think, just about a year. It's been cited uh, like crazy. Uh, but there are other, uh, there, there have been other replication attempts, other means of, again, stress testing the literature. 
And these two have shown that certain findings um, have uh, not replicated. So um, I'll give you I'll give you some ones that I that I know well because I've been involved in them. So one um, that has also received a lot of, t- of attention is in this area called ego depletion. Um, ego depletion uh, is a term. It's not a term that I particularly like. But it's a term to describe when essentially when people are tired or when they're fatigued, when they no longer um, have the energy to go on and to engage in effortful tasks. Uh, so the idea here is that uh, there's, there's, a, there's a model put forth by Roy Baumeister and a number of his students in the, uh, the late 90s suggesting that self-control relies on a limited resource. Uh, and when you use this resource to control yourself throughout the day, you have, you, you know, you, you literally use up that resource and you have less of it for, 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 for later times. Uh, so a classic study uh, in this genre of studies uses, the, uses you know, the, the paradigm they use is something called the sequential task paradigm, where people are given some effortful tasks. So, for example, they um, might be... Um, uh, there might be a, a plate of, of freshly baked cookies put right in front of them. And then they'd be told, oh, you know, you can't eat these cookies. So they have to restrain their impulses because these are literally freshly baked. The smell, you know, the, the, the room smells like, you know, like, like freshly baked cookies. It's very, very tempting to just grab one of those cookies. But participants are told not to eat them. Um, and another set of participants, uh, you know, will have the cookies in front of them and are allowed to indulge if they'd like. And then afterwards, and then participants, you know, they, they, they either restrain their impulse or they don't. Um, and then afterwards, all participants will be given, for example, a second kind of test of control. So that'll be something like, you know, how long they persist on some sort of tough puzzle. It could be a cognitive sort of reaction time task where we examine the extent to which they can um, inhibit, uh, you know, prepotent uh, uh, responses, the extent to which they can control their attention. And there have been over 200 studies, probably now closer to 400 studies, that have confirmed this basic pattern. The basic pattern is that when people engage in, uh, in, in, in a controlled activity at time one, they are less able or less willing to engage in a controlled activity at time two. There's a popular book written about this by Roy Baumeister and John Tierney, who's the science writer at the New York Times. It's a bestseller in the New York Times. Uh, I think it was published in 2011 or 2012. This is an idea that is so popular that a number of years ago, uh, uh, Barack Obama was interviewed for Vanity Fair, and he cited this research uh, as, you know, uh, to, to – uh, he cited this research in terms of explaining, you know, certain kinds of behaviors he engaged in. So he explained, for example, that he essentially wears the same sorts of clothes. He's got like, you know, 10 gray suits. And, uh, and he doesn't really have to, have to choose between them because the act of choosing has been shown to drain this resource. And uh, because Obama would rather preserve his resource and have this resource, this energy available to make other decisions, he'd rather avoid it. So he even, you know, President Obama was uh, citing this research as, you know, an, an influence of behavior. So this is an idea that has had you know, quite a bit of appeal. Well, it turns out that perhaps... There is no idea there to follow. Perhaps, you know, even though we've run 200 or maybe 400 studies now, it's possible that ego depletion is not a thing. It's possible that engaging in acts of control at time one, 
uh, for you know uh, the, the, for the, for the durations that you typically see in these lab experiments, like five or so minutes, does not have measurable downstream consequences at all. And that's kind of of a massive uh, uh, you know updating of our beliefs. Because this is an idea, like I said, that is not only popular, it has not only been supported by hundreds and hundreds of studies, it also, to some extent, makes intuitive sense, right? We, I mean, doesn't it make sense that if you, you know, if you're uh, working hard, or if you're expending effort, you know, for a certain period of time, you're going to be tired, and then afterwards, you're going to be less likely to expend effort. Uh, so it's, it's an idea that kind of makes sense, yet it's possible that you know, there's no idea there. It's possible that there's no real solid grounding to to that idea at all. And that's a, a really sobering thought. See, this is, I think, where a lot of people start to get confused who are outside the community reading about this, this crisis that's going on, this replicate, replicatability crisis, is we hear that there are patterns where we, there's been lots of studies done about an effect like ego depletion. And, but also that now we're finding we're not being able to replicate, is it one study or all of those studies? What's actually going on here? There seems to be a pattern and we've sort of reproduced the effect previously, but I guess not the original study. Is, is, am I understanding that correctly? Uh, yes, yes and no. So, I mean, uh, you're asking a really good question. So how do we know? How do we have doubt on 200 studies? I mean, are, are people going about trying to replicate each one of those 200 studies? And the question, and the answer is no. Uh, so typically what happens is people will pick one study and they will try to replicate that study. Uh, and, and, and maybe not being able to do it. Or they might, you know, there might be, uh, so, uh, it was just published, I believe, a month or two ago, uh, an effort that I was involved in, where 24 labs across the world tried to replicate one specific variant of this, you know, one specific study. Uh, from this ego depletion canon. And these 24 labs, uh, you know, and I think overall there were over 2,000 participants uh, uh, who participated, and the overall meta-analytic effect was essentially zero. There was no effect. But this is, you're right, it's just replicating one study. There, there are 199 others, or maybe 399 others. Do we need to go about and replicate all those? Maybe, maybe we do. Um, but there are other hints that there are problems. So, first of all, there have been other uh, uh, now reports, uh, uh, published reports, uh, where people are un were unable to replicate the basic effect using different paradigms, using different um, measures. Uh, those also can replicate. Uh, there are also now these meta-analytic techniques. So a meta-analysis is, is essentially just you know, uh, it's an analysis of analysis. So it, it, it's, it's, it's taking all the 200 studies, let's say, and, you know, seeing, you know, analyzing those. And when that's done, uh, if you use standard meta-analytic techniques, you might say, oh, actually, there's a pretty robust effect here. It looks pretty good. But the problem is when you are only meta-analyzing uh, published results, the key word there is published results, you are going to get a biased sample uh, of the effect. And that's because of this nefarious finding, this nefarious effect, I should say, called publication bias. And this is, I think, a key, uh, a, a key thing to understand if you want to understand the replication crisis. The pu publication bias is simply the idea that journals, editors, reviewers, and even authors do not publish null results. 
So I, re- I want to repeat that, okay? So in science, what we do is we ask a question, uh, we examine, uh, we, if we're doing experimental science, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll collect data that bears on the question, and then hopefully we have some, some, uh, you know, uh, some result that can then answer our question, it, it, you know, um, if we used, uh, you know, classical statistics, we might have a yes, no answer. Is our, is our hypothesis, has it been confirmed or not? Now, if you're only publishing results where the, you know, hypotheses have been confirmed, that means you're missing all the results where the hypotheses were not confirmed, all the null results, right? So, and, and, and trust me when I say that as a scientist, Many of our results are null results. So, uh, you know, if I knew beforehand the answer to my question, I wouldn't bother, you know, going about collecting data. The reason I collect data is because I have a certain degree of uncertainty uh, about my hypothesis, right? But then that, what that means then is that I should be publishing my, uh, uh, you know, my positive results, the ones that confirm my hypotheses, but I also should, should be publishing my null results, the re- results that, that, um, that do not confirm my hypothesis, right? But now because of this, because of this publication bias, because, you know, so there, there have been estimates that in psychology, I think 93% of all published findings are positive, meaning 93% support the hypothesis. But that isn't possible, right? I mean, it's, you know, the, the truer state of, uh, uh, of affairs would be something like maybe 25% of all my hypotheses are confirmed by, uh, by the data that I collect. Yet, but that means that you know seventy odd percent of um, of any one scientist's findings does does not make it into the published literature. It ends up in the in the proverbial file drawer. So now why why you know why is this file drawer important? Why is publication uh, bias important? Well, it's important because you know let, let's get back to ego depletion. I told you about these two hundred studies or four hundred studies, whatever it is. Um, well, how many more studies were run in the world? Is it 50 more studies were run? Is it 100 more studies were run? Is it 2,000 studies were run? We don't, we don't know because they're not published. So what you get when you meta-analyze a field is you just get a, a snapshot of what the field, of the published literature, but we also need to take account of the unpublished literature. And if the unpublished literature is large, and if it's also not just large, but maybe nulls or even with results that go against, uh, let's say, ego depletion, well, then that will change our interpretation of how robust a finding is. So that's just one really, really important um, reason why the published literature could be really, really wrong. There are other concerns as well around the ways that we're collecting data and uh, some of the statistical power around the studies that are, are have been produced. Can you talk a little bit about those problems as well? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are many, many problems. <laughs> they, are, they run deep. And I think right now we're seeing a massive correction because we've come to the realization that we have um, we've abused our inferential tools. Um, by that I mean we've, we've uh, misunderstood what our statistics are supposed to tell us. And, um, and as a result, we've made, I think, we've drawn erroneous conclusions, perhaps massively erroneous conclusions, perhaps conclusions that are so bad that, um, you know, I and some others have said, you know, maybe we need to start over. <laughs> That's sobering, right? I mean, so psychology is not a particularly old discipline. Uh, so, and social psychology, especially my, my area is not particularly old. 
starting over is not, uh, I mean, that's not daunting, but nonetheless, I mean, there are true findings out there in, in psychology, but, but there are probably a lot that are, yeah, a lot that are not true. And okay, it's really so, hard to tell the difference between the ones that are and the ones that aren't. Yeah. Well, it's hard, but it's not impossible. Mm -hmm. So you, 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 there are, there are clues out there about what is robust. So, I mean, for number one, you know, are there a lot, are there uh, direct replications out there? Um, how power, what are the effect sizes of, uh, of certain effects? So I'll give you one that's, you know, you can take home to the bank. So there's a famous study, uh, famous, uh, I guess, task uh, called the Stroop task. Maybe some of your listeners have heard of it. It's essentially, uh, a task where people are shown a series of color words. So they'll see the word red, green, yellow, blue. And, but now the key is that these words, uh, are also printed in colors, red, green, yellow, and blue. Sometimes the words, um, the color matches the semantic meaning of the word. Sometimes they mismatch the semantic meaning. And, and participants are simply asked to name the color, not to read the word. And what you find is that people have a harder time naming the color of these words when the semantic meaning and the actual color mismatch with one another. That's a robust effect. Uh, it, you know, you can take that to the bank. <laughs> that will reproduce over and over and again. And there's a lot, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff, a lot of effects like that. Um, but there's a lot of other effects that also don't replicate. But let me get back to your question about, um, some of the other, the, the other problems. So I think I, I, you, you, you use the word power, statistical power. And this is actually an important concept in, uh, in any field that relies on st statistics that your studies themselves need to have enough statistical power. They need to have, um, and another way of saying that is they need to have enough people. Uh, if you're collecting people, let's say in, in, uh, in psychology studies, or you need to have enough observations, um, to be able to, uh, correctly make, to, to make correct inferences. If you don't have enough people in your study, you're very likely to miss out on small effects that are actually there. If you don't have enough people in your studies, your p-values. So p-values are again these. I'm sure your your, your listeners have um, have heard heard of these because they're well, they're all over the place uh, in terms of uh, these are again tools to make inferences about hypotheses. Um, if you don't have a large enough sample, your p-values are really really unstable, and that's that's bad because we rely on those p-values to make inferences. Typically, we use a, a a P less than 0.05 as a, a kind of a magic cutoff, as a cutoff to say, okay, I now am willing to uh, reject a, a null hypothesis. Um, but if, if those p-values are really unstable because you don't have enough power, well, then what could happen is that, uh, you know, uh, PIs, experimenters, people running the studies, authors of papers, might be tempted to engage in, in what is now called questionable research practices, which these are practices which were previously encouraged, previously were thought to be okay. But these are essentially data exploration techniques to essentially move around your p-values. Okay, so you might you know drop an inconvenient subject who is an outlier. Um, so this is someone, uh, this, this might be a participant who has an extreme score on something. And, and we definitely want to get rid of people or normalize extreme scores. But sometimes people might choose to, uh, to take away, uh, to take an outlier away that's an inconvenient outlier, but maybe not necessarily take away a convenient outlier. 
Um, they might do things like use um, covariates in their analysis, which is like you're taking account of a third variable that might make their p-values look better, right? When theoretically they didn't predict these things uh, in the first place. So there's a bunch of these techniques, these things that, you know, actually in terms of data exploration, they're fine. It's fine. It's actually really important to explore your data and to really look at it from many, many different angles. But the problem is, we cannot label our exploratory analyses as confirmatory. And the, the, the statistics that we use, these p-values that I was mentioning, these are confirmatory data analytic tools. That means you have to go in a priori with an hypothesis, and then you have to verify your hypothesis. You can't then change your hypothesis and add different covariates and change your conditions or uh, what have you, because that's now in the realm of data exploration. And now you're... Um, the the amount of error that you might be uh, uh, the degree to which you're making an error in your inferences increases substantially when you engage when you engage in these, these exploratory techniques. So in other words, I think um, we didn't fully, as a field, understand uh, you know how some of these what we now consider questionable research practices how much they could lead us astray, how often they could um, uh, lead us to make erroneous conclusions. So in a post you wrote about what's going on in social psychology specifically, you said, as someone who has been doing research for nearly 20 years, I now can't help but wonder if the topics I chose to study are in fact real and robust. Have I been chasing puffs of smoke for all these years? Uh, that was in February, and it was really evocative and a thoughtful way to think about how challenging it must be to be within a field that is getting a lot of media attention and a lot of scrutiny on the methods and the types of science that you do every day. So as someone in the thick of what's going on, how are you feeling about it? Yeah, that's a good question. After I wrote that, uh, that blog post in February, um, I had a lot of friends come up to me afterwards asking, are you okay? Or is everything okay? Or, you know, I think people thought I was um, um, depressed. Now, I wasn't depressed because, I mean, I think that would, um, I don't want to be little people who actually do suffer from depression. So, um, but I was distraught at the state of our field. Uh, I still am distraught to some extent at the state of our field. Um, I guess what bothered me more the most was not so much that we made errors, uh, because, you know, Errors happen, and, and, and you know, errors are actually important uh, because th these are learning signals. And it's kind of funny, actually. A, a big part of what I study is now is um, uh, the the identification and emotional responses to errors uh, at the level of the brain. So uh, errors are, are are important because we can learn from them. Now, so I'm not bothered by errors, although I wish we had identified them a lot earlier. Uh, what bothers me is that it looks like. So in some corners, there's a denial that we've made errors. There's a, there's a denial that there's a problem or there's a minimization of a problem. And that means that, you know, the, the, again, there are certain, certain corners of our field that would rather us, you know, keep, you know, stick to business as usual. There are certain corners of our field that would, um, you know, essentially are saying, hey, folks, there's nothing here, nothing to look at, you know, proceed. Um, don't worry about all these, you know, uh, uh, methodological terrorists, uh, and go ahead and, and just, you know, proceed as normal. Uh, and that to me is, is, is very depressing. Um, it, it means that we're not learning, uh, from our mistakes. But, you know, maybe another way to answer your question is, um, 
you know, how do you respond to the possibility that uh, things you are studying uh, might not be real? Um, that's that's really hard. Um, I mean, I think to some extent I'm, I'm lucky. I'm, I, I'm I've got a, a, a eclectic interests, and so in that blog post I talked about two. Uh, I've had, let's say, uh, in my fee- in, in in my career, I've studied a number of things, but let's say there there have been two things that have really dominated. So earlier in my career, I studied a topic called stereotype threat, which is a a, a, a phenomenon whereby when people believe that their group is stereotyped or, you know, that, um, that they become stressed out by it and their behavior is affected by the, the, the emotional response to, you know, this fear of, of confirming a stereotype in the eyes of other people. Um, so that's one thing I studied early in my career. That's what I did my dissertation on and I've been rewarded handsomely for it, including having a job at the University of Toronto. Uh, and the second thing I've studied, and this is the latter part of my fee, uh, of my career, I've studied this phenomenon of ego depletion, which I've described earlier. Now, it, both those phenomena, but especially ego depletion, have come under quite close scrutiny. And some people uh, w- would say, you know, uh, that these these two phenomena are not real. These these are false positives. Now, if I had only studied those two things, I think I would be lost. What would I do? I mean, these are two things now that some people are suggesting um, are puffs of smoke. But what does that mean about the 20 years of research that I've conducted? What do I do with that? Can I cite those papers anymore? Can I stand behind them? Um, I mean, that's really tough. And now, so I'm, I'm 44 years old. So, uh, yes, I've been doing this for 20 years because I started well, almost 20 years. I uh, started grad school when I was 24. But so, and I've got a lot, I've got many years ahead of me in, in my career. So I'm a tenured professor. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I can, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I can switch topics easily and I can study things that are more robust. I've got choices. Now imagine though, you were 55 years old. Let's say it's 10 years, you know, let's, let's say I'm 55, not, not 44. Well, now, you know, I've got, you know, still got plenty of time left, but it's like, it's harder for me now to, to, to look back at what I've done and say, um, I can just switch topics. It, it, it would be really hard for me to admit personally that I've made these mistakes. And I think that's what you see um, in the response to this replication crisis is that the response is, I think, I don't want to say it's a hard line, but there appears to be a line uh, separating those who are, let's say, more junior from those who are more senior such that the more senior people are much more resistant to the, the, the idea that we've got problems. And the younger people are, are uh, at least from my perception, seem to be much more accepting of this. So young people who are starting in the field are idealistic. They, they're, in, they're, they're in science for all the right reasons. They want, to, they want to do good work. They're trying to approach truth. And if they're learning that these old, you know, uh, you know, inferential tools, these inferential, we've abused our inferential tools. Well, they're, they're very motivated to do the right thing. So they're all on board. Many of them are on board with these reforms, with these kind of new, new ways of doing things. And the resistance though is coming from, from who are the people who are the most powerful, the people who are the gatekeepers in our field, uh, the people who are editors, the people who are presidents of societies, the people who are, um, you know, on awards committees, et cetera. 
Um, yeah, so it, 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 it's, it's really difficult. It, it, it's a hard time. And I, you know, for me personally, I, I guess I'm lucky because I, you know, though I mentioned these two things that I've studied, but I study many, many other things and, and, and I feel, um, that uh, at least some of the other things I've studied are quite robust and solid. So I don't feel everything I've done, uh, uh you know, is puff of smoke, but, um, uh, but, but it's certainly a feeling, uh, about some of the things that I've done. It is, I think, watching it unfold, because uh, it is quite loud in the media, especially if you follow a lot of science journalism. It is a very clear reminder that scientists are people too, and that all people make mistakes. And it must be so hard to look at your life's work and just wonder if that effort and all those years was wasted. And I don't think it is a waste, but it's hard, I'm sure, not to think that at times. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, this is, it's kind of funny. So uh, social psychology, uh, has been rightfully criticized. Uh, you know, it, it's at the heart of this replication crisis. Um, but there are still concepts, uh, there's still some truths that we've generated. It's not as if we're, it's not as if everything has been puffed to smoke. I, I don't, I don't want to say that. Right. We're not going to like take the whole field and throw yeah. it in the bin. <laughs> but, 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 but there are, but, you know, so there are, you know, certain concepts that, we're seeing play out right now, right? So the concept of motivated reasoning, this idea uh, that, and this is even an old idea. Um, I mean, David Hume talked about uh, David Hume talked about these, but it's been born by uh, uh, by um, by some empirical data as well. The idea that you know uh, reasoning, this logical reasoning, is not this uh, necessarily this objective kind of, you know, weighing of pros and cons, but it's actually motivated. It's more like a lawyer, right? So, you know, there might be some bias that, 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 that pushes the reasoning in one way or another. And that's what I think playing out here where you have, uh, you know, certain, yeah, certain, you know, people who are, you know, who have conducted, you know, many, many years of research on a certain topic. And now it's, it's, it's coming into question. Well, they're motivated to protect their legacy. They're motivated to, 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 to be right. And now they're going to use their, their intellect. And these are very, very smart people, um, to defend their past work. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really interesting to watch the field over the last year. And I look forward to, uh, reading more about your research and following as social psychology figures out where its feet are and where to go next. Well, thank you very much for having me. And if you'd like to learn more about Michael Inslicht or his work, we have links to get you started on our website, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. This is Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Paul Smaldino, an assistant professor of cognitive and information sciences at the University of California, Merced. His research focuses on using mathematical and computational models to study the influence of culture on individual behavior and vice versa. Paul, welcome to Science for the People. Great to be here. 
So you wrote a paper with Richard McElrath titled The Natural Selection of Bad Science. Um, first of all, before we get into what that paper was about, what prompted the two of you to do this research in the first place? We thought it would be interesting to try to um, apply some mathematical modeling to science as a population process. So people have been talking for a while about things like uh, replicability, the fact that some studies aren't replicating in fields like psychology and biomedicine. Uh, and people have gotten some great data cataloging this fact uh, and just sort of making verbal arguments for what needs to be done. Uh, and then there have been some models uh, trying to quantify problems in science a bit more formally, but those have tended to be uh, models at the individual level, sort of assuming that there is an individual scientist and he or she is choosing a hypothesis to study, has methods that uh, have certain amounts of flaws, the hypothesis is good or bad, and then looking at probabilities for how likely is this result should uh, he or she publish uh, a result based on their tests, uh, how likely is it to be true? And what we wanted to do was say, well, science is not just individuals working in, in isolation. Science is a population process of a whole community or communities of scientists all choosing hypotheses and then attempting to publish these hypotheses uh, in journals in which there is publication bias and then there's replication. And replication is dependent on the published literature. And so there is a cycle of choose hypothesis, test hypothesis, attempt to publish, and then occasionally attempt to replicate things that have only been published. Okay, so your hypothesis was that we are somehow incentivizing bad science in a more kind of population level. So what types of incentives are, are you guys seeing? Or do you think you might see? Um, I think there are a lot of incentives out there. But uh, what we were talking about specifically in our paper were incentives to publish, um, to publish often, to publish in high visibility, high impact journals. Um, a related incentive is uh, incentives to get grant funding. Now, these are all things that to some extent should be incentivized, right? We want scientists to be productive, to produce research. Uh, we want them to produce research that, uh, makes makes a big impact and therefore deserves to be published in a in a high visibility journal. We want them to do research that is recognized by their peers and therefore succeeds in getting grant funding. But a problem arises when these kinds of incentives drive uh drive success to a large extent. So much so that early career scientists especially and late career scientists who mentor and advise early career scientists um, make the goal not necessarily doing the best science they can, but achieving these metrics because of the competition. So the goal is not anymore necessarily do the best science, but publish the most papers, publish, get a paper in nature, uh, get a grant, not because I need the grant to do my work, but because I need the grant or I won't get tenure or I won't get hired. Um, and our hypothesis that we develop in the paper is that these kinds of incentives over time drive, uh, 
the dissolution of the de- degradation of scientific methods um, by selecting for those kinds of methods that are best able to produce lots of papers and high visibility papers. Um, so I want to I want to unpack that a little more, but let me stop and ask if if this is making sense. Yeah, no, this is definitely making sense. So what your paper sort of does, based on my reading of it, is it takes the idea of biological evolution and uses that as a model to try and figure out how this natural selection is happening or if it is indeed happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so the... So we're not the first to make an analogy between biological evolution and cultural evolution. Uh, this is an area that is a small field that has been slowly growing uh, for about 30, 30 plus years. And uh, sort of applying and developing models rooted in ecology and evolutionary biology, but also uh, incorporating the the cultural and social aspects of human beings uh, to try to understand cultural change. So uh, in this case, we we are specifically trying to understand cultural change within the culture of science. So we built a, a, a computer model in which there is a population of scientists. Uh, These scientists, uh, or we call them labs to reflect the fact that uh, science is often a sort of a group uh, endeavor and the the best unit might be a a lab group rather than an individual. Um, Each lab has uh, characteristic methods uh, that are related to their ability to find true results and avoid false positives. Uh, they, uh, we, they have a characteristic level of effort or rigor. Um, now basically you can incre- uh, increasing, increasing effort, uh, we assume in the model decreases the probability of getting false positives. It means you're more likely to call a, a false hypothesis false, uh, and not get a, a false positive. Increasing effort uh, increases your ability to weed out these false hypotheses, but it also means that individual studies take longer. And uh, we also included in the model uh, a publication bias. So we assume, which is generally true in the actual world, that it's easier to publish positive results than negative results. It's much easier to publish a paper that says, hey, I found something totally new than, hey, I checked this thing out. Uh, that I thought might work, but it didn't. So everything is, I, the only new knowledge I added is that that thing didn't work. It definitely uh, those, sounds less sexy to say, I tested a thing and it didn't work. Right, totally less sexy to, to publish, to, to say. Uh, unfortunately, it's also a loss of information. Uh, so it, it makes it harder in the long run to ask to assess the validity of a claim if you don't have all the times that claim was found not to work because people who are testing it didn't publish. And it's also hurting scientists by saying, sometimes you can do really good science and have a good idea and it just doesn't work. Um, And that's okay. So these are our assumptions, basically, that 
increasing effort decreases false positives but makes it take longer to do studies and it's easier to publish positive results. We then assume that every so often an older lab would sort of stop doing science and a new lab would uh, join the community of scientists. That new lab was – the methods of that new lab would come from a successful lab within the existing population. Uh, This reflects the idea that uh, labs that are able to publish a lot, uh, are better able to attract graduate students, attract funding, and place their graduate students or have their methods copied by another lab uh, because of their success. So – um, we thought this was a pretty reasonable assumption, and that's basically the whole model, or at least the initial model that we did. And if you run these simulations, what ends up happening is effort just drops as much as it can because labs that are able to publish more and produce more false positives are more likely to publish a lot of papers and have success and therefore have their methods copied. So over time, not only are, is effort decreasing, but the amount of false positives in the literature is increasing. It's also really interesting that you guys specifically did not include any variables to account for uh, even a small minority of fraud or intent of fraud. Uh, you guys very specifically did not include that in the model. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we wanted to point out that Yes, fraud occasionally happens, and it's a real problem when it does. But this isn't about a few bad apples. This isn't about, oh, I don't do that, so I don't have to worry about science, uh, the science happening around me because I'm not intentionally gaming the system. Uh, this is a process by which methods, the methods that, uh, that become selected for, will be selected to produce more false positives. Uh, and this includes norms of understanding or misunderstanding. So uh, some evidence for that is the fact that in a lot of science, p-values, uh, which is a – the p-statistic is a, is, a, is a statistic that is used to, to determine um, – well, what it actually is is whether or not uh, the data – that one sees is likely to have been generated by a particular model. And this is used as, as evidence often of whether uh, a result is likely to be uh, true or not. So you can say, well, on average, X is bigger than Y, and scientists often use the p-value to say, is it really bigger than Y, or does it just, is it just, just noise? Um, right, however, is it just chance that we've got this Yeah, result? exactly. Yeah. Um, but there is, there's been consistent misunderstanding of p-values. Uh, so in the, in the, in the 60s, again, a, a philosopher named Paul Meal uh, and others pointed out there's a lot of problems with our use of the p-statistic. Um, and there seems to be a lot of misunderstanding of the way it's applied. Uh, this was, again, reiterated in the 80s. And just two years ago, the American Statistical Association published a, a big report saying there's widespread misunderstanding of p-values. Nobody seems to understand p-values. 
our model suggests that there's there may even be selection for this misunderstanding that individuals who misunderstand it and misapply it will be more successful than those who understand it really well and therefore uh, are more likely to be more rigorous in rejecting false positives. So you guys also ran a version where you specifically tried to incentivize replications uh, in this model to see what would happen if uh, more replication to try and generate more people replicating studies and a greater incentive to do that work. So can you walk us through that variation of the model as well and what you found there? Yeah. So the initial results uh, that of this sort of natural selection of bad science and the degradation of efforts, the increase of false positives, uh, that all made a lot of sense to us that this would happen. But there's also a lot of talk about reproducibility, replication. And our question was, is replication, is the incentivization of replication sufficient to stop this whole process happening, to, to keep science good? Um, now, we're both very, very firm believers that replication is critical for doing science, for being confident in our results. So this isn't about whether or not scientists should do replication studies. Of course they should. This is about whether or not replication is enough to stop this process, this natural selection of bad science. So we decided to make things very favorable for this possibility. We, we in, allowed scientists to occasionally replicate. And uh, at first we said, well, let's start with kind of realistic levels of replication. So there have been some estimates in some fields about 1% of every study published is a replication. So we, we started it at one, but we let, we let that be part of a, a lab's method so that labs who did more could increase in numbers um, if that was selected for. Uh, and then we said, all right, well, let's make it very easy to publish a replication study. Let's make it so that whether or not you find the, res the initial result or not, you can always publish a replication. Uh, it's worth something. Uh, toward your prestige and likelihood of getting your your methods uh, reproduced, but it's just less than what a novel result is worth because there's still uh, incentives for novelty. Uh, we then said, all right, well, if you're the, the lab that published the initial study that's being replicated and it's successfully replicated, you should get a little bump too because now your result is more solid. Um, but if you're the initial, the lab that initially published the result and it fails to replicate, uh, let's make it so this is terrible. This is catastrophic, that it's like nearly career ending. Uh, we don't actually think that this is what we should do because even the best science occasionally will uh, generate a false positive because of noise. But it was sort of a way to be as favorable to this idea that replication could stop the process as possible. Right. You were trying to give it the best chance of succeeding. Give it the best chance of succeeding. Right. So we made it just terrible. Um, so if you, you had a study that failed to replicate, your lab was very unlikely to pass on your methods to future labs. The lion ate you. Right. Exactly. Um, 
And what we found was uh, almost no effect. That effort just just plummeted, false positives increased. Uh, and replication increased a little bit, but not much. And so we thought, all right, well, that didn't work. Uh, maybe replication isn't increasing fast enough. Maybe just not enough replication is happening. So that's why it didn't work. So we we artificially imposed very, very high rates of, of replication. We made it so that some huge percentage of all studies were replications of previously published results. We did it so that 25% of all studies were replications. 50% of all studies were replications. And what we saw was that this did not succeed in stopping the natural selection of bad science, that this did not succeed in stopping the plummeting of effort and the booming skyrocketing of false positives in the literature. So this is not exactly good news. <laughs> this reminds me of a conversation or of the conversation around education and using test scores as a way to judge the relative quality of teachers. I mean, teaching like science is a really difficult skill set to judge, but it seems like trying to create some kind of measurement or comparison score so that we can give limited resources to the right people or attempt to give those limited resources to the right people might be kind of feeding back on itself and causing us a lot of problems. I think that's a really apt analogy. And one I've thought of myself, I, I think it really points out, though, how difficult it is to do assessment in some sort of complex social behavior, uh, like whether it be teaching or science or a- anything where there is competition and limited resources and we need to figure out how to allocate them some way. But we are also busy people with limited resources, limited time, and we need some way to evaluate. The problem is when you have a simple metric like whether it's for scientists, the number of publications, the impact of the publications, or for schools, the the score is on a standardized test, what you end up doing is you, you end up selecting for whatever methods can maximize those metrics, whether or not they're, they're maximized intentionally or not. Paul, thank you so much. A really fascinating paper, and uh, I look forward to hearing more from you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And if you would like to learn more about Paul Smaldino or his work, we have links to get you started, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. 
You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. 